it's a really great pleasure for us to welcome Henry back um, to the archive of performances of Greek and Roman drama. We've invited Henry once before when he gave the Classics in English uh, lecture. We couldn't have been more delighted to hear that he was at all sold this term. Uh, he's a professor, as I'm sure many of you know, um, of English um, at Exeter. He's very much coming home this term. I don't know how much he wants to uh, admit to that. He, he did the Classics in English degree, and a number of people in this room I know, uh, some years ago, and has since then gone on to enjoy quite a starry career, and I've watched from the sidelines with great admiration as uh, first the, the thesis became the big book, and really the essential book on uh, epic and, and, and the early British novel. Since then, it, I mean, prodigious uh, editing um, of really major texts for anyone in, involved in, in classical reception. Um, the prose of Addison, which I'm very much aware, you know, people like me should at least be looking at, but have to confess, until I knew that um, there was an edition that is edited by someone with a very seriously well-trained classical uh, mind as well, um, I would have been quite unable to access. There is an edition of, of, of Pope in very much in press, nearly there. And meanwhile, <laughs> <laughs> and meanwhile I am you know, hearing that uh, what I thought was the central project, because definitely it was the reason why we asked Henry to contribute to our performing epic uh, project here um, in Oxford, um, was I thought there was um, a, you know, a kind of ongoing um, project on, on Logan. I've definitely um, learned a huge amount from Henry's work so far. And I understand that that has almost um, uh, also reached completion. So um, I now look uh, over my shoulder and realise that, um, I mean, Henry never stops, actually. Um, but, but the best thing is, he never stops, like lots of people. Um, at All Souls, but I would say, unlike many people, perhaps at All Souls, he's the best communicator in the world. So you're in for <laughs> 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 Sorry for anyone I'm offending. <laughs> but welcome, Henry, and a huge uh, thanks to you for, for coming today. So. Thank you, Fiona. Um, I hope everyone's got sight of a handout. Um, this has got. This is mostly so you can have. A copy. Oh, you can have my one. It's all right. Yeah, that's fine. I've got. I think I've got the poem in front of me. Um, this is mostly so you can have sight of a poem which I'm about to read and which I'll be talking about quite a bit. Um, and also there is a a list of works cited on the back. Um, uh, those are the editions I'm citing from. I'll try and give you the dates of publication or composition as I go along as well. Um, so this talk is going to be about the ways in which three poets, none of whom were alive at the same time read Homer, or perhaps more importantly about the way they thought about the experience of reading Homer. And these poets were Alexander Pope, John Keats, and Tom Gunn. And all three of them thought of Homer as being in some way analogous to the ocean. That's my, that's my starting point, which is the source of all life as Homer is the source of all literature. Um, and I should be upfront about the fact that only one of them, and that's Keats, actually uses the metaphor of the ocean as a means of describing Homer. But what I wanted to suggest is that when Keats does so, he's drawing on the experience of reading Pope, and that Gunn then draws interestingly and significantly on his experience of reading Keats. So I'm going to begin by reading a short poem by Tom Gunn. This is the one in, the, in front of you. 
in the hope that what I say over the course of the next 45 minutes or so will cast some light on it. And what I want to think about in particular is that central motif of the poem, the discovery of the Pacific. Um, and I use that rather vague, non-committal word, motif, because I think it's both the central event and the central metaphor of the poem, as well as its title. So here it is. They lean against the cooling car, backs pressed upon the dusts of a brown continent, and watch the sun, now westward of their west, fall to the ocean. Where it led, they went. Kansas to California. Day by day, they travelled emptier of the things they knew. They improvised new habits on the way, but lost the occasions, and then lost them too. One night, no one and nowhere, she had woken to resin smell and to the fur's slight sound, and through their sleeping bag had felt the broken, tight-knotted surfaces of the naked ground. Only his lean, quiet body cupping hers kept her from it, the extreme chill. By degrees she fell asleep. Around them in the firs the wind probed, tiding through forked estuaries. And now their skin is caked with road, the grime merely reflecting sunlight as it fails. They leave their clothes among the rocks they climb, blunt leaves of ice plant nuzzle at their soles. Now they stand chin deep in the sway of ocean, firm west, two stringy bodies face to face, and come together in the water's motion, the full court pause of their embrace. Now, before I come to the poem, I'm going to start by saying a little bit about Tom Gunn. Here he is. Uh, he was an English poet, born in 1929. He published his first collection of poems while he was still an undergraduate at Cambridge, and then left England shortly after graduating, settling in San Francisco with his partner, Mike Kittai. Uh, in the late 60s, Gunn and Kittai opened up their relationship, and Gunn had a large number of lovers between then and his death in 2011. At the same time, he was experimenting with hallucinogenic drugs, and especially with LSD, and many of these experiences find their way into Gunn's verse. Um, why say any of this? Mostly because I want to stress that as a poet, Tom Gunn was a contradiction. His poetry is very often concerned with the chaotic. His early verse is largely about the overwhelming experience of being a young Englishman in 1960s California. Um, then he moves on and talks about the confusion and occasional lucidity induced by mind-expanding drugs. Later works address the exciting chaos of free love. And then in his penultimate collection, um, perhaps his greatest work, The Man with Night Sweats, he describes the devastation caused by the spread of AIDS in 1980s San Francisco. Um, so the contradiction lies in the fact that while Gunn's life may have been, to say the least, untidy, his poetry never was. He was, to a greater extent than just about any other 20th century poet I can think of, alive to the expressive potential of formal metre. And he had, again, I think just about more than any other modern poet, a very keen sense of his place in the literary tradition. Um, and he worked hard to reconcile these two aspects, the learned, careful, craftsman-like poet on the one hand, and the chronicler of chaotic personal experience on the other. Um, and we can see a wonderful attempt at this kind of reconciliation in Gunn's reflections on Ben Jonson. Um, he edited a selection of Ben Jonson's works in, um, in 1974. <coughs> Jonson's poem, says Gunn, have the smoothness, control, and urbanity that we associate with classical writing. It is interesting, 
that most of those who have succeeded best in writing so, i.e. within restraints both technical and passional, have been people most tempted toward personal anarchy. For them, there is some purpose in the close limits, and there is something to restrain. Um, you can see Gunn kind of yielding to the temptation towards personal anarchy there by wearing this amazing psychedelic vest, but restraining himself slightly by tucking it into his jeans. Um, this, uh, Gunn's remarks on Johnson seem to be an example of that well-known phenomenon where people are especially revealing about themselves while talking about other people. Um, I'm not sure how apt a description of Johnson's work this is, and I'm not even sure that it works particularly well as a truism, but it's a wonderful account of how Gunn's poetry works. Um, and in fact, we can find Gunn saying something quite similar about the relationship between his own chaotic subject matter and his tight poetic practice in an autobiographical essay published in 1979. Um, Meter, he says, seemed to be the proper form for the LSD-related poems, though at first I didn't understand why. Later, I rationalised about it thus. The acid trip is unstructured. It opens you up to countless possibilities. You hanker after the infinite. The only way I could give myself control over the presentation of these experiences, and so could be true to them, was by trying to render the infinite through the finite, the unstructured through the structured. Um, the LSD-related poems are mostly contained within Gunn's 1971 work, Moly. Um, Moly, you may remember from the Odyssey, um, is the plant which Hermes gives to Odysseus and which enables him to resist Circe's spells. Um, so Odysseus manages to remain human when his men are turned to pigs. Um, in the title poem of Gunn's collection, the narrator is a man trapped in a pig's body, buried in swine, as he puts it, and Moly is clearly a figure for LSD. The speaker roots through the undergrowth searching for the substance that will lift him to a higher level of being and consciousness. Direct me, gods, whose changes are all holy, to where it flickers deep in grass, the moly. Cool flesh of magic in each leaf and shoot, from milky flower to the black-forked root. From this fat dungeon, I could rise to skin and human title, putting pig within. Moly sets the tone for the collection that bears its name. It's a metrically tight, elusive poem which uses a moment from classical literature as a means of describing a particular personal experience. Um, and it's also one which places a huge emphasis on physical sensation. This is something that's very often true of Gunn's work. He manages to be both literary and sensuous. Um, so to come back to the discovery of the Pacific, this describes a young couple who have driven across America and reached the Californian coast. Gunn later wrote that they were part of the wave of 1967ers crossing America for the summer of love in San Francisco. Having watched the sun set over the ocean, they make their way into the water, shedding their clothes as they go. Their journey has been one of self-discovery. They've travelled emptier of the things they knew. And having discovered themselves, they discover each other. And the poem's climax is clearly a moment of sexual climax. Gunn's very strong punctuation leaves us in no doubt of that. They don't simply come together, they come together. Um, and there's a clear movement from the almost unconscious embrace at the poem's dead centre, his lean, quiet body cupping hers, to the knowing sexual embrace at the poem's close. Um, and Gunn, by the way, is the great, I mean, bar no one, he is the great poet 
of hugs. Um, and if there was, if anyone knows his work, you'll, you'll be familiar with this. Um, there are so many poems. This is the whole alternative lecture in which he talks about <laughs> hugs of one kind or another. Perhaps the greatest of these is his reworking of the Ovidian episode of Philemon and Baucis in The Man with Night Sweats. Um, but anyway, I promised to talk about Homer and the discovery of the Pacific, so I should be upfront about why I think this poem is Homeric. As we've seen, it was published in a collection whose title comes from Homer's Odyssey, and whose title poem uses an Odyssean moment as a way of exploring the mind-expanding effects of LSD. Um, and the discovery of the Pacific also has a strongly Odyssean flavour. These lovers are on a great journey west, chasing the sun and finally watching it set over the ocean. One might remember Odysseus's thoughts as he reaches the westernmost point of his waking journey, looking west, waiting impatiently for the sun to set so that the Phaeacians can carry him in his sleep on the final leg of his journey home. Um, and from this point of view, it's interesting to note that the poem is the penultimate poem in the collection, um, and the last one, called simply Sunlight, is a hymn to the sun. So the lover's journey across America is echoed by the reader's journey through the book. Um, Dunn wrote to his editor at Faber in 1970, if you want to publish the book, you might suggest to the designer of the dust jacket that yellow is a very nice colour. That is, there is so much sunshine in the poems, more and more the later you get in the book, that it would be rather appropriate to have sunshiny colours on the cover. And as you can see, he got his way. So Gunn's travellers, like Odysseus, move westwards, chasing the setting sun. And like Odysseus, they drink in the world around them and discover and alter themselves as they do so. They improvise new habits on the way, but lost the occasions and then lost them too. Odysseus has seen many cities and learned the minds, or perhaps manners, or perhaps even habits of many men. And then the poem's most difficult moment, its dead centre, um, that knotty pair of stanzas in which one of the travellers awakes and finds herself lost. Specifically, she finds herself no one and nowhere, a stripping away of identity which enables her eventual self-discovery and which also recalls Odysseus's adventure in Polyphemus's cave. Does he ever know himself better? Do we ever know him better than when he momentarily casts off his identity and names himself to the Cyclops as Mertis, no one? Um, Finally, the poem's climax is a moment of sexual climax, as I've said, and there's something of the Odyssey about this as well. That poem's narrative climax, um, indeed many ancient critics thought this is where the poem should properly end, is the moment where Penelope recognises Odysseus, um, and then when husband and wife have recognised themselves in each other, they return to the ritual thesmos of their marriage bed. This, then, is another coming together. So, there are Homeric echoes, which I think are insistent, which perhaps don't amount to much more than an Odyssean flavour. Um, and perhaps it would be possible to run through a similar list of ways in which the poem bears a family resemblance to the Aeneid or to the Grapes of Wrath. Um, but what really forces us to consider this poem is its relation, um, in relation to Homer, is its title, The Discovery of the Pacific. In draft, um, and this is, Gunn was a, a multiple reviser and redrafter of, of all his poems, often over the course of a decade. Um, and this is a kind of, I've said an early draft, but this is a kind of, it's ten drafts in or something. Um, uh, initially, he calls the poem The Opening of the West. He's got both titles here, The Opening of the West and The Discovery of the Pacific. Um, a title which more clearly asks us to see the lover's journey as a small-scale 
more private version of the epic journeys made across the states by the prospectors and adventurers of the 19th century. To call it instead the discovery of the Pacific positions the lovers differently. It lessens the ironic force of the original comparison, though a trace of it still lingers, and asks us to see it more squarely as a poem of self-discovery. Besides this, there's a particular and unmistakable resonance to calling a poem the discovery of the Pacific, um, and more to the point, there's a particular essence to describing a moment of self-discovery as being like the discovery of the Pacific. And I want to suggest that Gunn has in mind Keats's poem on first looking into Chapman's Homer. So we move from one draft to another. Um, Keats wrote this poem and delivered it to his friend Charles Cowden Clark um, one morning in October 1816, after the two men had stayed up all night um, reading Chapman's translation of Homer, the Odyssey in particular, in fact. Um, and I'm just going to read the draft as it was first delivered to Cowden Clark. Much have I travelled in the realms of gold, and many goodly states and kingdoms seen. Round many western islands have I been that bards in fealty to Apollo hold. Oft of one wide expanse had I been told that deep-browed Homer ruled as his demean. Yet could I never judge what men could mean, till I heard Chapman speak out loud and bold. Then felt I like some watcher of the skies when a new planet swims into his ken, or like stout Cortez when with wandering eyes, sorry, wandering eyes, he stared at the Pacific, and all his men looked at each other with a wild surmise, silent upon a peak in Darien. The passage Keats had been particularly enthralled by was the moment when Odysseus is washed up violently on the coast of Phaeacia. Shipwrecked, battered by waves, Odysseus clings tenaciously to life. He's compared at this point to an octopus as he desperately grips his rocks, grips the rocks, and then finally makes it onto the shore. And this is the, the, that moment as translated by Chapman. So this is the precise moment that excites Keats um, and Clark on that evening in, in 1816. Then forth he came, his both knees faltering, both his strong hands hanging down, and all with froth, his cheeks and nostrils flowing, voice and breath spent to all use, and down he sank to death. The sea had soaked his heart through, all his veins, his toils had racked to a labouring woman's pains, dead weary was he. The land that Odysseus arrives at is, he hopes, he always hopes this, familiar. Um, so he's spent days at sea um, and his, his heart is soaked with salt water, but he staggers on shore and kisses the life-giving soil. Um, so it's particularly extraordinary, I think, that in his response to this passage, Keats exactly reverses that transition. To approach Homer in a fresh translation is to arrive at the very edge of the familiar and to pause on the brink of something vast, unknown and unknowable an ocean. Now, Keats was one of Gunn's major influences and obsessions as a poet, a constant point of reference in his prose, and also, incidentally, the subject of one of his best sonnets, Keats at Highgate, um, published in 1982, in which he describes the famous meeting between Keats and Coleridge in the spring of 1819. When Gunn writes about Keats, he holds him up as the great poet of experience and sensuality. I am a romantic he wrote in 1981, thinking with Keats that nothing ever becomes real till it is experienced. Even a proverb is no proverb till your life has illustrated it. 
Keats's sonnet on first looking into Chapman's Homer describes vividly and precisely just such a moment, one at which experience makes real an idea which had only been understood at one remove. That transition from the idea of Homer, um, as relayed in that rather twee faux medieval language which bards in fealty to Apollo hold, to the actual experience of coming face to face with Homer in a version which made sense to Keats. Gunn must have Keats's experience of reading Chapman's Homer in mind when he describes his lover's silent hug, their coming together face to face. Like Keats, he uses the discovery of the Pacific as a metaphor for a transformative personal experience. But when Gunn uses it, there isn't simply an ironic comparison between the stringy young lovers and the European conquistadors of the 16th century. In the background also lies Keats's famous account of having a new world opened up to him. There's a basic comparison which I think Gunn's title makes inescapable, between the lover's discovery of themselves and Keats's discovery of Homer. Um, I'll return to Gunn at the end of the paper. Uh, for now, I want to ask why the discovery of an ocean is an especially pertinent metaphor for Keats's discovery of Homer. Partly because it turns the reader into an explorer, heading away from the familiarities of English literature, the realms of gold, which Keats knew so well. For most of the 18th century, the standard translation of Homer had been that of Alexander Pope, published between 1715 and 1726. Um, this is without doubt how Keats would initially have got to know the Iliad and the Odyssey. But Pope's tight, polished, decorous, and the word that people most often use about them, polite, heroic couplets, were being rejected more and more vociferously as the century came to an end, and as there was an increasing insistence on the idea of Homer as an untutored, um, or as some put it, a primitive genius. So William Cooper, in 1791, complained that Pope had embellished the Homeric poems, alas, he says, to little advantage, for the simplicity, the almost divine simplicity of Homer, is worth more than all the glare and glitter that can be contrived. Um, or as Charles Lamb put it in 1808, what everyone misses in Pope, in other words, what they don't get, what you don't get, if you read Pope's translation, is a sort of indelicacy in Homer. Um, so Pope is all about the politeness, the glare, the glitter, um, at a time when people are looking for simplicity or indelicacy in Homer. Um, I'm going to give a very brief example of the way in which Pope softens and, sm and smartens and politens Homer. Um, so in Book 11 of the Iliad, the retreating Ajax um, is compared to an ass, um, and Pope is kind of instinctively senses that this is going to be a problem for some of his readers. Um, and he goes to great lengths in a note um, accompanying his translation to justify the comparison of a noble warrior to such a, a kind of such a base, such an ungainly animal. Um, and the note covers several pages. Um, he argues that, quote, what Homer here images is not the gluttony, but the patience, the obstinacy, and strength of the ass. Furthermore, he adds, the baseness or loftiness of the objects of comparison is hardly the point. Rather, we should, quote, consider if the image produced be clear and lively, if the poet has the skill to dignify it by poetical words, and if it perfectly paints the thing it is intended to represent. Now, obviously, for Pope, Homer passes all these tests. Um, but despite all this, when Pope comes to translate the passage, it looks like this. As the slow beast with heavy strength endued in some wide field by troops of boys pursued, 
Though round his sides a wooden tempest rain, crops the tall harvest and lays waste the plain. Thick on his hide the hollow blows resound, the patient animal maintains his ground. Scarce from the field with all their efforts chased, and stirs but slowly when he stirs at last. On Ajax thus a weight of Trojans hung. Um, that thus in the final line I quoted is taking quite a strain. But what exactly is Ajax being compared to? Um, although the poetry is wonderful, the simile breaks down because we never quite get told. Pope's sense of decorum won't allow him to use the word ass. And he explains this further in another note. Upon the whole, he says, a translator owes so much to the taste of the age in which he lives as not to make too great a compliment to the former. And this induced me to omit the mention of the word ass in the translation. Now, this is fairly typical of Pope's strategy throughout his translation from Homer. The verse brings Homer into line with 18th century tastes, while the notes gesture towards the simplicity, or what Lamb called the indelicacy, of the original. To make reading Homer an exploration, um, as Keats does, reasserts Homer's otherness. He's not of our time or of our world, but a poet from a rougher-hewn age. And one useful point of comparison to Keats's poem um, is a poem by Pope's great friend, John Gay. This is called Mr. Pope's Welcome from Greece, which Gay wrote in 1720, just as Pope was completing his translation of the Iliad, and in which Gay presents Pope's translation of Homer as a process of naturalisation. Um, this, by the way, is um, rather a wonderful painting, a portrait of Pope, done just as he was embarking on his translation of the Iliad. And it captures quite well, I think, precisely that mediation I was talking about that you get in the translation between, you know, you have the, the rough and gloomy visage of Homer um, looming over his shoulder, but Pope, you know, his own face bathed in light, is very much in the world of the, the 18th century drawing room. Um, so this is an extract from, from Gay's poem to Pope. Cheer up, my friend, thy dangers now are all. Methinks... Nay, sure, the rising coasts appear. Hark how the guns salute from either shore as thy trim, trim vessel cuts the Thames so fair. Shouts answering shouts from Kent and Essex roar, and bells break loud from every gust of air. Bonfires do blaze, and bones and cleavers ring, as at the coming of some mighty king. Um, so Gay pictures Pope, who has been away at sea, sailing into London, um, like the captain of a, of a merchant vessel at the end of a successful trading expedition. And the, you know, the idea of him returning from the, you know, the strange, the exotic, to the familiar, that this is what's happening in the translation, is, is brought into focus especially, I think, by the, the mention of bones and cleavers, this curiously 18th and 19th century, curiously English custom of butchers playing tunes on hollow marrow bones and knives used to happen on kind of holidays and special occasions. This is not something that features in the Homeric world, um, but it is something that Gay imagines Pope's translation returning home to. Um, so what has excited Keats about Chapman's Homer is the fact that the roughness of the Elizabethan version seems to take him away from England and into the unknown. Um, and so we here have two very different models of translation. Um, Gay's highly complimentary view of Pope's Homer as a bringing home of something foreign, um, and Keats's view of Chapman's Homer as being an outward journey, the discovery of a new world. Um, to read Chapman's Homer for Keats was to move from a state of unknowing 
yet never could I judge what men could mean to the brink of an unseen ocean. Um, to travel to the brink of an undiscovered ocean is to contemplate the unknown and perhaps the unknowable. But there's another reason why an encounter with Homer can be seen as an encounter with an ocean. Um, the name ocean for the ancients did not originally signify just a wide expanse of sea. Rather, Okeanos was the name of the stream which encircled the world and from which all creatures and all gods originated. Virgil in the Georgics calls ocean the Paterarum, the father of things, and much earlier, the Orphic hymn to ocean, which probably dates to the 5th century BC, addresses him in the following terms. Ocean I call upon, father unperishing, always existing, origin of immortals and mortals, who sends his wave round about the farthest part of earth. Um, and there was an established tradition in antiquity of associating Homer with ocean, because as the oldest and greatest writer, he was the ultimate source of all subsequent literature. The critic Quintilian wrote in the first century AD, um, as Homer says that the, that the courses of all rivers and streams have their origin from ocean, so he gave a model and origin for all the elements of eloquence. Um, and in the 12th century, the great Byzantine commentator Eustathius wrote in very similar terms, um, that from the ocean arise all rivers, all springs, all wells, according to the old saying, and from Homer, if not the whole, at least much of the stream of learning flowed to men. Now, Keats seems to draw on this tradition when he compares reading Homer to discovering uh, an ocean. Now, he's unlikely to have read Quintilian and still, yes, still less Eustathius, but he had read Pope, who draws heavily on both writers in the preface and notes to his translation. Pope also saw in Homer the origins of all subsequent literature. In his essay on criticism, this is one of his earliest published works, um, Pope claimed to have written when he was 19. Um, he offers this advice to aspiring poets. Be Homer's works your study and delight. Read them by day and meditate by night. Thence form your judgment, thence your maxims bring, and trace the muses upward to their spring. Um, and in the preface to his translation of the Iliad, he offers a view of Homer which is rather wilder. Homer, like the Nile, he says, pours out his riches with a boundless overflow. He goes on to offer a similar view to the ancient critics, to Quintilian and Eustathius and others, though he chooses a slightly different metaphor. Um, Pope may never have seen an ocean, um, but he did spill a spend a great deal of time gardening and designing gardens. And this is where he goes when trying to express, I think, essentially the same idea. Our author's work is a wild paradise, where if we cannot see all the beauties so distinctly as in an ordered garden, it is only because the number of them is infinitely greater. Tis like a copious nursery which contains the seeds and first productions of every kind, out of which those who have followed him have but selected some particular plants, each according to his fancy, to cultivate and beautify. If some things are too luxuriant, it is owing to the richness of the soil, and if others are not arrived to perfection or maturity, it is only because they are overrun and oppressed by those of a stronger nature. So, whatever the Romantics might have said, Pope um, does in fact acknowledge the wildness, the disorder, the roughness of the Homeric poems. And he also acknowledges the fact that they contain multitudes. Um, and this is something that is fundamental to the way he goes about translating Homer. Um, I want to look, this is the, the last passage I'll look at from Pope's Homer, um, at a passage from the end of Iliad, Book 8. Um, this is where we see Hector and his troops camping out on the Trojan plain, um, hoping 
hoping in vain that the next day will see the final destruction of the Greek army. The troops exulting sat in order round, and beaming fires illumined all the ground. As when the moon, refulgent lamp of light, or heaven's clear azure spreads her sacred light, when not a breath disturbs the deep serene, and not a cloud or casts the solemn scene. Around her throne the vivid planets roll, and stars unnumbered gild the glowing pole. O'er the dark trees a yellower verdure shed, and tip with silver every mountain's head. Then shine the veils, the rocks in prospect rise, a flood of glory bursts from all the skies. The conscious swains, rejoicing in the sight, eye the blue vault and bless the useful light. So many flames before proud Ilion blaze, and lighten glimmering Xanthus with their rays. And when Pope translated this passage, he stressed in the accompanying note um, that this night piece, as he described it, um, is among the best things in the Iliad. The comparison, he says, is inferior to none in Homer. It is the most beautiful night piece that can be found in poetry. He presents you with a prospect of the heavens, the seas, and the earth. The stars shine, the air is serene, the world enlightened, and the moon mounted in glory. Um, so this passage became very popular um, and was very frequently anthologised um, throughout the 18th century. Um, it's perhaps no exaggeration to say it's, it becomes the best-known moment in Pope's Homer. Um, and perhaps because of this, it became a particular focus for the romantic rejection of Pope um, in general, and Pope's Homer in particular, um, towards the end of the century. It was with this night piece in mind that Coleridge described Pope's Homer in 1817 as, quote, the source of much of our pseudo-poetic diction, adding that it is difficult to determine whether the sense or the diction be more absurd. Um, it was later drawing on Coleridge and Wordsworth and other attacks on this passage that Arnold wrote in his famous essay on translating Homer in 1861 that it is for passages of this sort, which after all form the bulk of the poem, that Pope's style is so bad. <laughs> so in both cases, the accusation is that Pope has taken something wonderfully simple, um, you know, plainness and directness, you have to remember is what, is what Arnold um, is looking for in a translation from Homer, He's taken something wonderfully simple and made it hopelessly ornate. Um, in fact, what Pope is particularly doing in this passage is assembling his translation from various literary sources. I mean, this is true of pretty much all of Pope's Iliad and Odyssey, but it's particularly demonstrably true in this passage. Um, so the phrase conscious swains has been taken from Pope's own earlier Georgic poem, Windsor Forest. Tips with silver recalls the moment when Romeo swears to Juliet by yonder blessed moon that tips with silver all these fruit tree tops. Heaven's clear azure is taken from book one of Paradise Lost, where Satan's feet move over the burning marl, not like those steps on heaven's azure. And the strange use of the deep serene perhaps glances back to Milton's invocation to light in book three of Paradise Lost. So thick a drop serene hath quenched their orbs. Um, and finally, the description of the moon as the refulgent lamp of light comes from Dr Dryden's translation of Virgil's Aeneid. I say finally, those are only the ones that I can spot, but you kind of feel when you read Pope's Homer that you're, you, are, you are always reading, um, potentially reading familiar words, which may be kind of precise allusions, but may just be because he draws on the, this kind of existing repertoire of poetic language to such an extent. Now, the passage became famous and ultimately notorious 
not only because Pope singles it out as one of the finest in Homer, but also because Samuel Johnson including a tr included a transcription from the manuscript in his 1781 Life of Pope, um, in order to show readers the painstaking way in which Pope assembled it. Johnson had a keen sense of Pope's borrowings and wrote of his relationship with Dryden in particular. The chief help of Pope in this arduous undertaking, the translation of Homer, was drawn from the versions of Dryden. Virgil had borrowed much of his imagery from Homer, and part of the debt was now paid by his translator. Now, that sense of Pope as repaying a literary debt is significant, but doesn't apply just to Pope's relationship with Dryden, but to the way in which he co-opts all of English literature into his translation. Homer has provided the seeds for all subsequent literature, and Pope demonstrates and celebrates this by making his Homeric poems contain everything. Shakespeare, Milton, Virgil, the Bible, and a host of lesser poets, including Pope himself. So it's one of the great ironies of Pope's Homer, um, that precisely what makes it seem to some readers so overwrought and literary and belated is precisely Pope's attempt to show that it's the ultimate primordial source of all literature. Now, Keats knew all this about Homer. He knew it intellectually through reading Pope and reading Johnson on Pope, and he knew it instinctively and emotionally because, he's, uh, because of his own account, encounter with Homer um, in Chapman's version, awakening him to the vastness and richness and strangeness of Homer's poems. When he came to revise his sonnet for publication in 1820, he made a handful of, handful of, of alterations to the original draft. Um, yeah, here we are. Um, but he altered one line in particular in a way which makes it clear that he had this famous passage from Pope's Iliad in mind. Where previously he has this rather clunky line, yet could I never judge what men could mean till I heard Chapman speak out loud and bold. In 1820, he revises to, yet never did I breathe its pure serene, which draws closely, I think unmistakably, on Pope's famously overwrought line, when not a breath disturbs the deep serene. So as Keats describes his exact moment of altered consciousness, of self-discovery, of moving away from the constraints of Pope's Augustan translation, he does so with an inescapable reference to perhaps the most famous passage in Pope's Homer, a passage that has a strange double status, evidence both of Pope's off-putting 18th century poetic diction and of Homer's richness and strangeness, of what we might call his oceanic qualities. At that moment, Keats is alluding simultaneously to Homer, to Milton, and to Pope. His discovery of Homer is a personal discovery, but the reference to Pope at that precise moment of realisation, at the turn of the sonnet, also acknowledges that he's not the first to have had such an experience. There's a similar irony in the title of Gunn's poem, The Discovery of the Pacific. Now Keats famously, and this is often one of the first things students learn about his, his sonnet on Chapman's Homer, um, made a mistake in putting stout Cortes on that peak in Darien. It was in fact Vasco Nunes de Balboa who crossed the Isthmus of Panama to reach the Pacific Ocean in 1513. And even Balboa was seeing something which had been there for thousands of years and been looked at by thousands of pairs of eyes. Um, indeed, William Robertson's History of America, which we know Keats read and which is his most likely source, begins the account with a somewhat contradictory statement that, quotes, at length the Indians assured them that from the top of the next mountain they should discover the ocean, which was the object of their wishes. We're more wary now of saying blithely, that such and such a European discovered such and such a place in the wider world. 
Balboa did not discover the Pacific. He just went there. And it's all the more ridiculous, we might think, to describe Gunn's young lovers as discovering the Pacific, as they drive into Big Sur with all the other pleasure seekers of 1967 and clamber over rocks to the ocean, leaving a trail of their clothes to match all the other trails of clothes. But despite the light irony in the title, which, as I said earlier, replaced another lightly ironic title, this is obviously a moment of discovery of all the same, of each other and of a world with expanded horizons. What they're discovering is not the ocean, but the world of infinite possibilities that it represents. And here we might think back to Keats. What attracted Keats to the image of Cortez discovering the Pacific was not the fact that he supposedly got there first. Keats was well aware that he came late to Homer. The poem, in fact, is about coming late to Homer. To reach an ocean and stand on its edge, or wade into its shallows, is to be confronted by a wild paradise and a world teeming with possibilities. And these possibilities are not diminished for Keats by the fact that someone has already experienced them. In fact, one wonders whether the irony brought to the fore in Gunn's poem is already present in Keats's sonnet. Cortez is enraptured by the experience of staring at the Pacific. He has not discovered it, that's doubly true, but it feels like a discovery to him. We might even pause to wonder whether Keats is being playful when he has Cortez sighting the Pacific, at least in the final printed version, this is another change that he makes, with eagle eyes. In the end, how eagle-eyed do you have to be to catch sight of the Pacific? It is, <laughs> without exception, the largest thing on the planet. <laughs> it's worth remarking that many responses to Keats's poem linger on this sense of belatedness. Um, one fascinating example is Henry James's description of Adam Verver, the plutocrat and collector of antiquities, um, in Henry James's late great novel, The Golden Bowl. Um, he had, like many other persons in the course of his reading, been struck with Keats's sonnet about stout Cortez in the presence of the Pacific. But it was probable that few persons had so devoutly fitted the poem's grand image to a fact of experience. It consorted so with Mr. Verver's consciousness of the way in which at a given moment he had stared at his Pacific that a couple of perusals of the immortal lines had sufficed to stamp them in his memory. His peak in Darien was the sudden hour that had transformed his life, the hour of his perceiving with a mute inward gasp akin to the low moan of apprehensive passion that a world was left to him to conquer, and he might conquer it if he tried. So this sudden hour that has transformed Adam Verver's life is his realisation that he has the spirit of a connoisseur, um, and he makes the subsequent decision to spend his many millions of dollars on acquiring European antiquities and works of art. The passage shines a light on his possessiveness. He's possessive about art, he's possessive about people, and he's even possessive about Keats's poem, which he believes himself to be uniquely capable of understanding. But he's a conspicuous latecomer to the world he longs to conquer, an American industrialist bewitched by treasures on which so many have already gazed in the old world. So he becomes a kind of mirror image of Cortez or Balboa, who cast European eyes on the Pacific for the first time and imagines himself a discoverer. There's something rather depressing and exposing about the way Verver appropriates the simile. Few persons, he says, have so devoutly fitted the poem's grand image to a fact of experience. He claims exclusive ownership of Keats's simile and, sit and insists that the many other persons who have been struck by it are not capable of understanding it quite as he does. In fact, one of the things that the poem describes so well is the way in which grand images can be fitted meaningfully to moments of personal discovery. 
Um, and we find an excellent example of this in another seminal early 20th century novel. This is P.G. Woodhouse's Thank You, Jeeves. Um, I don't think I need to introduce this passage, because unlike James, um, there's nothing opaque or tortuous about P.G. Woodhouse's sentences. Jeeves, I recollect saying on returning to the apartment, who was the fellow who, on looking at something, felt like somebody looking at something? <laughs> I learned the passage at school, but it has escaped me. I fancy the individual you have in mind, sir, is the poet Keats, who compared his emotions on first reading Chapman's Homer to those of stout Cortez, when with eagle eyes he stared at the Pacific. The Pacific, eh? Yes, sir. And all his men looked at each other with a wild surmise, silent upon a peak in Darien. Of course, it all comes back to me. Well, that's how I felt this afternoon on being introduced to Miss Pauline Stoker. Press the trousers with special care tonight, Jeeves. I am dining with her. <laughs> now, I think Bertie Wooster is a better reader of Keats than the self-regarding Adam Verver. Um, unlike Verver, who thinks the poem makes sense to him alone, Wooster grasps its universal applicability and grasps at the same time the vital secret at the core of all poetry that things are like other things. <laughs> it's worth considering the way in which, in this particular instance, things are like other things. The point isn't that discovering oceans or having new planets swim into our ken gives us an insight into what it's like to read Homer for the first time. Few of us will ever be astronomers or conquistadors, but all of us have the chance to read Homer and to find in the Iliad and the Odyssey that new planet, that wild paradise, that teeming ocean. We've seen that Tom Gunn found in formal meter a vehicle for articulating the chaotic experience of an LSD trip. It should come as no surprise to find him offering a portrait of self-discovery which draws on a deep knowledge of literary history. I would suggest that the memory of Keats's simile and all the history leading up to it lies behind Gunn's account of his two travellers. As they clamber over the ridge that will take them to the Californian coast and as they come together, presumably staring at each other with a wild surmise, we might see them as 1960s iterations of Stout Cortez. But to a much greater extent, these two discoverers of the Pacific resemble Keats reading Homer for the first time. They may have only one thing on their mind, but the way Gunn describes their situation suggests that Homer and Pope and Keats were all in his. And, and 
a kind of quasi-erotic encounter. Mm. Of course, uh, she um, there's various fantasies in the context about them getting married, which doesn't happen. But do you think that that? Yeah, I think that, that, that hadn't occurred to me at all. But I think that's I think that's wonderful. I mean, it. it um, I just get the sense when I read that poem that there seem to be Homeric echoes, many of which I can't trace at all, all the way through it. But I think that's, that the Nausicaa episode must absolutely be there. The other thing, I'll just, which I'll just put out there, is the, that through their sleeping bag had felt the broken, tight-knotted surfaces of the naked ground. It really made me think, although I couldn't connect it to a specific passage in Homer, of Odysseus disguised as a beggar in Ithaca. I thought the, the, the tight-knotted surfaces of the ground, there must be some particular resonance, but I, yeah, I can't, I can't track it down. Stuff about him being physically wiry, I think, mm. when he, when he takes off his his rags, they say he's pretty built. <laughs> and and uh, just to pick up on, on the erotics of, of, of the sonnet, Keats' sonnet, it, mm. and your wonderful suggestion that that Woodhouse is the best, <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, the 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 anticipatory kind of eroticism of, of this whole wonderful sequence mm. you've given us. It sort of uh, also feeds in. So. Yeah. Are there other hands up? I can see. Yeah, I think I think Pope. I mean, I think Pope is the first person to to go there in English that I know of. Um, it's not something. Um, it's not something you get in Chapman. Although Chapman is Chapman very much introduces. Uh, you know, there, there, there's lots of the Aeneid in Chapman's Homer, but Chapman doesn't theorise it or bother to talk about it. He's just he's just doing his thing. Um, but Pope is the first person that I'm aware of to, first translator to kind of, to theorise that, yeah. And is there, I just wondered, lurking behind this um, idea of, of, of a, a kind of patchwork tradition or something, is, I mean, is this in some way also an attempt to replicate, you know, the epithets or whatever? Are we supposed to recognize you know to hear milton to hear as you say dryden i mean is that are we, spe well, the, are the we supposed to i mean is that i think I mean, this is, is that this is the great 
the great mystery is because it's almost impossible to put yourself in the mind of the kind, you know, that lovely edition out there, subscribers mm. edition. Mm. What would a would a reader in 1715 um, have, have actually been able to to trace these things as they come along? And I mean, I, I think I tend to the view that they are they're so frequent um, and it's so kind of they're, they're, it's so part of the texture of of Pope's poem that you couldn't possibly identify every single one. It's just a kind of it's you know you get used to the fact that you're just reading this language which is made up of... The reason I ask is there's quite a lot of early modern theorising about translation methods which involve this idea of, 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 of patchworking. You know, so it, that, um, you know, that is what translation is. It is you know, reusing pieces in order to make a new. Um, so, I mean, not... In any, I mean, it's just striking the similarity between Pope's practice as you're describing mm. it, um, and he's implying um, uh, in practice rather than necessarily theorising himself yeah. about. That is remarkably like, um, I mean, and not just in English. I mean, it, it, it's across all European mm. vernacular. In the Latin as well. Yeah. In the Latin, mm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it also reiterates the formulaic language of Homer itself mm. and the way he takes the formulae yeah, of poems and poets before him mm. as if they are, you know, as if imitating the formularity of the I mean, that could be one of the reasons. Yeah, but that is that's behind my rather crazy And that would <laughs> fit with your idea that you don't have to recognize the exact passage where it comes from, mm. but you recognize it as something I Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, and... It's interesting because, because Pope is very keen to escape the you know the, the formulaic side of Homer um, is you know that's part of simple Homer who he will acknowledge in the notes but avoid in the verse. So you don't get um, repeated epithets. You don't get the kind of epithets which seem to Pope in any way automatic or expunged. He will use an epithet. You know if if Hera is actually reaching out her arm to receive a goblet, she's allowed to be white armed. But if, if she's just white-armed and it's got nothing in particular to do with anything, then he, you know, he, he removes it. So the kind of, yeah, that formulaic language disappears, and it's a, yeah, it's a new... Well, um, I'm really sorry, Ben. I'm going to be killed by the archaeologists. So. <laughs> <laughs> if I don't mind that. But um, I, I, I do hope we can continue the conversation over a cup of tea um, so Ben, please hold that comment, you know, that question if you can. And, and join me in thanking Henry Surrey.